Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 106 of the show, and it is just a spectacular episode for you this week. There is a massive amount of stuff to get into. We will recap a wild card weekend in the NFL and look ahead to this weekend's divisional round, preview those matchups. Of course, we'll do standings updates in the NHL and the NBA on the PGA Tour. We'll recap this past weekend's event and look ahead to this weekend's event. And then the Around the Island segment, uh, just a ton of information to throw at you uh, via the NFL and Major League Baseball, some NBA news as well. So uh, there is just a lot of stuff to get into. We will start in the National Football League, and how can we not, right? Super Wild Card Weekend was last weekend, and boy, was it a dandy. Uh, Just some great matchups. I previewed all of those matchups on the last week's episode um, and made some predictions that we'll we'll just kind of... um, Give you a brief summary of what happened. I'm sure a lot of you watched um, either all of the games or parts of some of the games, but uh, I'll just give you a brief summary of what happened. I did fail to mention, though, on last week's episode that this was the first time since 1999 that all three Florida teams in the NFL had made the playoffs, and that was short-lived because two of them just got booted this weekend. Now, uh, I will remind you that the top overall seeds in each conference were on a bye week. That was the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC and the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC. So those two teams did not play. We had a total of six NFL games this past weekend. The first one on uh, Saturday afternoon. There were two on Saturday, three on Sunday, and one on Monday night. The first game on Saturday was in the NFC. It was the number seven seed Seattle Seahawks traveling down to Northern California to take on the number two-seeded San Francisco 49ers. These, of course, are NFC West division rivals. They played each other in Week 2 and Week 15 of the regular season, and um, San Francisco won both of those matchups. All right, San Francisco also entered this game on a 10-game winning streak, uh, riding the red-hot hand of rookie quarterback Brock Purdy. All right. This was a close game. This was probably one of the higher point spreads that we saw coming into the weekend. And it was a close game in the first half. The the 49ers actually got up 10-0 early in the game. But uh, Seattle came back. They scored 17 points in the second quarter, took a 17-16 lead into halftime. And then after halftime, uh, San Francisco just opened up a can on the Seahawks, pulled away to a 41 23 victory and Seattle scored uh, their last touchdown uh, late in the fourth quarter with just a few minutes left Uh, otherwise they would have gotten shut out in that second half so not a lot of scoring by Seattle 
plenty of scoring by San Francisco, and Brock Purdy just absolutely continued to shine. He threw for over 300 yards, had three passing touchdowns, added a rushing touchdown, became the youngest quarterback of all time with at least two passing touchdowns and a rushing touchdown in the same playoff game. So, um, you know, Debo Samuel was very active. Christian McCaffrey had over 100 yards. Uh, It was just a a dominating performance by the 49ers there in that second half to uh, move them on to the divisional round. The Saturday night game uh, this weekend was uh, in the AFC. It was the number five Los Angeles Chargers against the number four Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, traveled, uh, Chargers traveled across the country. These two teams actually played uh, back in week three. It was in Los Angeles that, that week. Jacksonville dominated that game. Uh, they won by four scores. And uh, then they proceeded to lose their next five. Then they won their next five after that. So that was kind of the last, um, you know, uh, good effort from the Jags for a while. And, um, you know, this game was just an absolute gong show. Uh, It was the best game of the weekend. And uh, I say that the first half, Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback Trevor Lawrence, he threw three interceptions in the first quarter. All right. Two on the first couple of drives, just some ugly football, added a fourth interception in the second quarter. So the Jaguars got down 27 to nothing in this game. Chargers just capitalized on all those turnovers. Three of those four interceptions in the first half uh, were made by Asante Samuel Jr. of the Chargers. So Chargers were up 27 nothing. The Jaguars added a, a touchdown late in the first half to make it 27 to seven at halftime. Okay. And then once halftime uh, cleared and players got back on the field. It was all Jacksonville there in that second half. Uh, Jacksonville, uh, you know, Trevor Lawrence had four touchdown passes in the second half, no interceptions, uh, just a wild performance by Trevor Lawrence. Um, uh, the tale of two halves, really. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous, but the cardiac cats did it again. And Jacksonville ended up kicking a game winning field goal, to win the game 31 to 30. All right, that means that the Jaguars completed a 27 point comeback being down 27 to nothing. That's the third largest comeback in NFL postseason history. All right, now Trevor Lawrence, I told you it was the tale of two halves. He was the first quarterback since 1991 to throw three first quarter interceptions in a playoff game. He's also the second quarterback ever with four passing touchdowns and four interceptions in a postseason game. The only other player to do that was Ben Roethlisberger just a couple years ago. And uh, I mentioned just exceptional in the second half. All four of his touchdowns came uh, in that um, second half. I think, well, three of them did. But uh, nonetheless, uh, he had four touchdown passes. And on the other side, the Los Angeles Chargers, they became the first team in NFL playoff history to lose a game with a plus five turnover margin. Uh, that like You have to try to lose a game when you're up 27 to nothing and you have a plus five turnover margin. Uh, that, that is just, uh, that is, you can't even fathom that. Um, it's just a complete, an utter collapse by the Chargers. But nonetheless, uh, Jaguars move on. They oust the Chargers. So that brought us to Sunday's slate of games. All right. 
Uh, the first one was uh, via the AFC number seven Miami Dolphins. They traveled up to Buffalo to take on the number two Buffalo Bills. All right. Of course, these are AFC East division rivals. They split the season series. They met back in week three and then again in week 15. A little snowy conditions there in Buffalo. All right. So they each won uh, their home games in that regular season series. This game started out brutal for Miami. Uh, Buffalo got out. They raced out to a 17 to nothing lead. Uh, Miami scored 17 points in the second quarter and, um, you know, made it. You know, I think it was 20 to 17 at halftime, but Buffalo was able to pull away in the third quarter, got up by 10, uh, 34 24. Uh, Miami scored late to pull within a field goal, uh, but uh, it was too little, too late there for the Dolphins and uh, the Bills move on there. Uh, Josh Allen had a couple of interceptions, didn't look particularly good. But uh, both Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis, uh, his top two receivers, they each had over 100 yards. So, um, you know, he, he certainly still was good. On the other side, the Dolphins rolled out Skylar Thompson. I had mentioned last week that Tua Tagovailoa still hadn't cleared concussion protocol. Well, he didn't, and he was ruled out a couple days before the game. So that was uh, third-string quarterback Skylar Thompson. Rookie, uh, you know, started last week, first career start. Started this playoff game as a second career start, and um, it, it looked really bad at first, really bleak. But you know, credit to the Dolphins for uh, for fighting through this thing in Buffalo uh, to get it um, close. But uh, Buffalo won the game thirty four to thirty one. All right, and um, so that sent the Bills into the second round. The mid-afternoon game on Sunday was in the NFC. Number six, the New York Giants against uh, the number three Minnesota Vikings. Uh, this game was in Minnesota, of course. And these two teams played just a few weeks ago in week 16. That game was also in Minnesota, and the Vikings won that one on a last-second walk-off 61-yard field goal. Just a massive kick. Um, so we knew it was going to be a close game. Um, I did predict... Uh, the Vikings would win, but I, I, I did tell you last week that this was the game to circle as the biggest upset alert, and man, did that come to light. Uh, it was really a close game all the way through. They traded scores kind of throughout the game. Uh, Giants got up 24-14 in the third quarter. Minnesota came back, tied it at 24 shortly into the fourth quarter, and then New York uh, scored the go-ahead touchdown with about eight minutes left, and that ended up proving to be the game winner. Now, Minnesota had the ball, um, you know, under a minute left, had a fourth and eight, and had a very questionable play call. Had a couple receivers downfield. Of course, Justin Jefferson was covered, double covered, and Kirk Cousins threw a three-yard out pass to tight end TJ Hawkinson, uh, who was pretty tightly guarded. Um, so he threw for, you know, a three-yard pass on fourth and eight, uh, which, you know, he got he got tackled immediately, Hawkinson did. That ended the game and uh, because New York got the ball and just took a knee and it was over. So Daniel Jones, the quarterback for the Giants, he was just exceptional in this game. Became the third quarterback in NFL playoff history with 300 passing yards and 75 rushing yards in the same game. Uh, just a great performance. Uh, interestingly enough about Daniel Jones, uh, the Giants had declined his fifth-year option 
of his rookie contract before this season started. Remember, he was the sixth overall pick just uh, four years ago, and uh, they declined that fifth-year option. So he's been playing for a contract all season, and uh, I think he probably made himself a lot of money this weekend with that uh, win over the Vikings. The, the, the Giants won the game 31-24 to on that. And if uh, the Giants can win this week, man, Daniel and Daniel Jones is a big reason why he's gonna get uh, he's gonna get some serious cash. But the nightcap on Sunday night was in the AFC. Number six, Baltimore Ravens traveled uh, over to Cincinnati to take on the number three seed, Cincinnati Bengals. Okay, these are AFC North division rivals. Uh, they had played back in week five, and then in the last week of the regular season, week 18, which was, of course, one week before this game. Baltimore won the game in week five in Baltimore. Cincinnati won the rematch just a week prior to this game in Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati came into this game having won eight uh, games in a row. Uh, This was a very close game, tightly contested, typical AFC North slugfest game. Basically the opposite of what we had seen from these two teams just one week prior in Cincinnati, you know, on the same field when Cincy dominated that game. Uh, The Ravens, they did not have Lamar Jackson in this one, but they did get Tyler Huntley back, who is their second string quarterback. Uh, In week 18, they had their third stringer, Anthony Dixon, playing. So Huntley made a little bit of a difference. Uh, he, He made some good plays, some good throws, was pretty elusive with his feet, but he made a critical error in the fourth quarter, all right? Game was tied at 17. The Ravens were on Cincinnati's one-yard line, all right? They called a quarterback sneak, which is, you know, usually a good call, especially with an athletic quarterback. Instead of going low and, like, pushing forward, Tyler Huntley tried to jump up over the pile and reach the ball across the plane. The problem was is that he was a full yard out, maybe a yard and a half, and as he was stretching the ball, the Cincinnati defense knocked the ball out of his hands, fumbled, falls to the, the turf. Cincinnati defensive end Sam Hubbard, he picked up that fumble, ran it 98 yards back for the go-ahead touchdown, All right, made it 24-17. Uh, that was actually the first go-ahead defensive touchdown in a playoff game since 1996, and that proved, believe it or not, to be the game winner in that game. So uh, we went... Uh, last, uh, what, eight to ten minutes or so without uh, a, another score. But Cincinnati won 24-17. Um, the Ravens threw, I don't want to say a Hail Mary, but Huntley threw probably a 30- or 40-yard pass there at the very end of the game as time expired, hit off a Cincinnati defender's hands and kind of hung up for a minute. Ravens receiver tried to dive and get it, but uh, it came up just short. So it almost ended in a miracle tie, which would have sent it to overtime, but the Bengals did win. And then on Monday, Monday night football was the NFC matchup, number five, Dallas Cowboys against the number four, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Okay. Um, my Dallas Cowboys, uh, these two teams, they played each other in the opening week of the season back in Dallas. That's the game that Dak Prescott broke his hand. The Buccaneers won that one 19 to three, but uh, since that game, both teams went in completely opposite directions. Um, Dallas obviously became a top end NFC team. Uh, they win, you know, they won twelve games, and then Tampa Bay 
struggled to win the NFC South and did win it with an 8-9 and nine record. Barely squeaked into the play. Basically got into the playoffs by default uh, because they play in a rancid division. So um, we had that going. The game itself, man, the first few drives were brutal. I think uh, the first seven or eight pass attempts by both teams like combined fell incomplete. It was just a sluggish start for both teams. Uh, but then the Cowboys offense got rolling. Dak Prescott was absolutely spectacular in this game. He threw for four touchdowns. He ran for another touchdown to have five total touchdowns in the game. He became the fifth quarterback in NFL history with four passing touchdowns and a rushing touchdown in the same playoff game. And this was actually the fourth playoff game in a row that Dak Prescott has thrown for a touchdown and ran for a touchdown in the same playoff game, which is the longest streak currently in NFL history. Um, Dak Prescott was one in three in playoff games coming in, so he'd only played in four. So four out of the five games, the four out of the five playoff games that he's been in, he's had a passing and a rushing touchdown, uh, four in a row. So that's, uh, he, he was electric. Tony Pollard had some really good runs. Uh, C.D. Lamb stepped up. So did uh, Dalton Schultz. He was the target of the night for Dak Prescott. That Cowboys defense was absolutely stifling, um, which got the Cowboys out to a 24-0 lead um, on four touchdowns. Now, if you're doing the math at home, you'll realize four touchdowns with four extra points should put you at 28, okay? Well, it was 24-0, and that really became the talk of the game because Dallas Cowboys kicker Brett Maher missed all four of his first extra points, um, which set an NFL record for the most extra points missed in a single game in NFL history, regular or postseason. So that's not the record you want to set. Luckily, uh, the defense was playing so well for the Cowboys that uh, those those missed points didn't hurt them. But uh, the Cowboys went on to win 31-14. Tampa Bay scored a late touchdown with a couple minutes left to make it 31-14. It was 31-7, or 31-6, rather. They got the two-point conversion to make it 31-14. So uh, Dallas dominated that game. It was the Cowboys' first road playoff win since 1992 when, ironically enough, they beat San Francisco in San Francisco. A little foreshadowing there. Uh, but this game was on ESPN. It had 30 million viewers, which was the most watched playoff game uh, in the NFL since 1999. Okay, so just a crazy wild card weekend. Um, I did go 5-1 and one in my predictions. The only game that I got wrong uh, was the Vikings and the Giants. Okay, I picked the Vikings, but I did, uh, disclaimer here, I did tell you that that was the most likely to be the upset. So, But 5-1 and one's not bad. We'll move over to the divisional round of the playoffs, which is this weekend. We have uh, four games, two on Saturday and two on Sunday. Final eight teams in, in the playoffs here. On Saturday, we'll get started uh, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern on NBC. It's number four in the AFC Jacksonville Jaguars traveling to Arrowhead to take on the number one seeded Kansas City Chiefs, who were, of course, off last week. The two teams did meet back in week 10. Uh, the game was in Kansas City, and the Chiefs won that one 27-17. All right. The Chiefs, uh, coming off their bye, as I just mentioned, they're well-rested. They're at home. They play well at Arrowhead. 
The Jaguars on the other side are coming off just an epic and historic comeback of 27 points. Um, The Chiefs are not the Chargers, right? I don't think I need to tell you that, but if Trevor Lawrence plays as poorly in the first half as he did against the Chargers uh, this week against the Chiefs, uh, there's no coming back on the on the Chiefs. That's just not going to happen. So uh, if Jacksonville comes out and plays like they did in the second half of last week's game, if they can put four quarters together like that, uh, this game's going to be very competitive. Um, the Chiefs are just better. They have Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelly. I don't even need – you guys know who's on the Chiefs. Um, so I am picking the Chiefs to win that game, all right? But it uh, would not surprise me if – if Jacksonville plays well, that this game is close, all right? Um, Saturday night, uh, 8.15 p.m. Eastern on Fox, the NFC matchup, number six, New York Giants, traveling up to the link to take on the number one seeded Philadelphia Eagles, all right? These two teams are division rivals in the NFC East, all right? They did not play each other until pretty late in the year, all right? Their first game was in week 14. That was in New York. Uh, Eagles dominated that one, uh, 48-22. They met again in week 18, last week of the regular season, in Philadelphia, all right? The Giants rested every meaningful starter in their lineup because that game meant nothing to them. Uh, Philly was trying to clinch home field, so they played their starters against the Giants' second and third stringers. And the Eagles only won that game by six points, right? It was 22-16. So uh, that that kind of throws a wrench in what you would think uh, this game would be as far as a blowout. Um, the Eagles did win both regular season matchups, but that second one is a little concerning if you're Philly. Of course, the Eagles, they're, they're coming off their bye week, so they're well-rested. Um, it is very challenging to beat the same team three times in one year, though, all right, especially a division opponent, all right? And with the way that the Giants played last week, specifically Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, he had two touchdowns last week. Uh, if they play like that, uh, this game is going to surprise a lot of people, all right? Philadelphia has basically been penciled in to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl since about week eight, or nine, okay, so, um, but the Giants have something to say about that, all right, and their performance last week uh, really was indicative of that, okay, like I said, if Jones and Barkley can play close to what they did last week, um, this game's going to be close, all right, Um, you know, Philly's the top seed, they were off last week, they're at home, I know they beat them twice in the regular season, but I, my official pick is Philadelphia. But, man, uh, would not surprise me one bit to see the Giants beat the Eagles uh, if they play well. I just, I don't, I don't see, I don't see that happening. Um, if if Hertz is, is anywhere near 100%, this, this thing, it probably isn't going to go great for New York. But the two games on Sunday... First one is in the AFC. That's at 3 p.m. Eastern on CBS. That is the number three Cincinnati Bengals going to uh, Buffalo to play the number two seeded Buffalo Bills. Okay, these two teams were set to play back in week 17 just a few weeks ago. That game was in Cincinnati. And, of course, we all know that was the DeMar Hamlin game, which uh, ended up getting canceled with about five and a half minutes left in the first quarter. The Bengals were up seven to three. All right. 
Uh, Buffalo, man, they look really tough, all right? Um, Cincinnati, though, they come into this thing on a nine-game winning streak, including last week's win, all right? Uh, this is a true battle of the heavyweights, right? Um, you know, you got Allen, Diggs uh, versus Mahone, or uh, Burrow and Chase and T. Higgins and Joe Mixon, you know, um, this, I would have loved to have seen the rest of that, uh, DeMar Hamlin aside, assuming that never happened, that, that game was going to be just an absolute barn burner, which I think this could be too. All right. Um, big news for the, the Bengals, uh, offensive tackle Jonah Williams, um, great player for the Bengals protects Joe Burrow on that offensive line. He dislocated his kneecap last week, so he's not going to play in this thing. Uh, so they'll have a backup. Um, I believe he uh, is a right tackle. Um, but that's a big blow for Cincinnati. You, you factor that in, you know, with them being on the road. Um, is Cincinnati capable of winning this game? Absolutely. You know, do I think they, they, they will? Possibly. All right, Possibly. Uh, but I did pick the Bills to win the Super Bowl back in my preseason picks. So uh, to keep the continuity with that, I am picking Buffalo to win this game. They are at home. All right, they um, they played in a, both of these teams played in a tightly contested, uh, down to the wire type of game last week. All right, Buffalo shouldn't have been as close as it was, uh, but but it was, and Cincinnati won a, a tough game. They both played divisional opponents last week, and so it um, it's going to be a damn good game, I'll tell you that. Wouldn't shock me. You know, Cincinnati's the reigning AFC champions, so they could easily walk out of Buffalo with a win, all right? Joe Burrow's been on another level this year, um, right up there with Allen in terms of uh, league MVP, and um, so this is pretty much a coin flip game, uh, but I'm going to, you know, with the injury on the offensive line for Cincinnati, Coupled with uh, Buffalo being at home, I'm, I'm going to pick the Bills in this one. And the final game this weekend is in the NFC. That's on Sunday night, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Number five, Dallas Cowboys traveling over to California to take on the number two-seeded San Francisco 49ers. These two teams did not play in the regular season, but if you recall, they did meet in the wild card round of the playoffs last year in Dallas. And uh, that game, again, came down to the wire. But the 49ers beat the Cowboys uh, on the road to knock Dallas out of the playoffs. So this game means so incredibly much for Dallas. Because of that, they do not want to get sent home by the same team twice uh, in back-to-back playoffs, all right? Now, the 49ers come into this thing hotter than a fox in a forest fire, all right? They've won 11 games in a row, including last week. Brock Purdy has looked superhuman. All right, he's won all six of uh, all his first six career starts. He's won all of them. Um, you know, the offense has built around Brock Purdy's, you know, rookie limitations, if you will. Skill positions all over the field. Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, Elijah Mitchell. That's going to be a big problem for the Cowboys defense. Um, the 49ers are probably the most complete team because their defense is every bit as good as their offense. Now, the Cowboys, last week, that Cowboys team that showed up, they can beat this 49ers team, okay? They absolutely can. Dak Prescott, that version of Dak is a is a top 
uh, sixth quarterback in the NFL. All right. He, he's paid as such, and that's why. All right. The Dallas Cowboys defense, if they show up like they did last week, man, that is, this is going to be a really good game. All right. At some point, though, Brock Purdy has to look average or below average. Like he's not had a bad game. Has he looked mediocre at times? Sure. But overall, his his passer rating has been over 100 in all six of his starts so far. He's won them all. He's gotten help from his defense. Um, but he's, he's going to make mistakes, right? And I think those mistakes come this week. Now, do am I, am I flat out saying that the, the Cowboys are going to win? I, I, I really want to pick the Cowboys, all right? And there's there's a caveat though, um, you know San Francisco I think is is a more maybe more complete team, I guess if you will, um, but Dallas is right up there with them, and they showed that last week in that annihilation of the Buccaneers. So um, I picked Dallas last week. I wasn't real confident. I'm going to pick Dallas to win the game this week. I, there, there you go. I said it. I'm picking Dallas. Yes, I'm a homer for my teams, but you know what? If the Cowboys play the football that they just did on Monday night or something close to it, they could win this game. They have the better quarterback, all right? And that that's really the most important position on the field. Both defenses are good. If, it's, if the difference is going to be at quarterback, give me Dak Prescott over Bryce Purdy or uh, Brock Purdy. The average ticket price for this thing, this game between Dallas and San Francisco, the average ticket price, $1,420, which is the most expensive divisional game ticket price average of all time. Um, just insane, okay? Last Dallas Cowboys road win in 92, prior to Monday, was in 92. That was at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Uh, Troy Aikman versus um, Steve Young. All right, and um, yeah, so uh, hopefully we get uh, history repeats itself. Not the history from last year because 49ers uh, eliminated the Cowboys at that time. But those are the four matchups, all right? Um, Just so I told you it's on record, I'm taking the Chiefs, the Eagles, the Bills, and the Cowboys uh, to win those four games. Now the NFC East, all right, you'll notice – uh, they've been dominant all season. They had a 14-win team, a 12-win team, a 9-win team, uh, and uh, an 8-win team. All right, It was the best record, uh, best divisional record uh, in the league. They had 21 of the 44 NFC Pro Bowlers came via the NFC East, just dominant. Now you'll notice I just talked about those matchups. Three out of the final four NFC playoff teams are from the NFC East, all right, which is the first time since 1997 that uh, the same division has sent three teams to the divisional round. So NFC East showing their teeth, uh, but on the AFC side, interestingly enough, all four of the division winners, the top four seeds, all four of the division winners, uh, those guys are the, the final four on the AFC side. So, um, and speaking of, uh, of, the eight playoff teams, the next generation of quarterbacks has officially arrived, all right? Can we agree on that? Uh, The average age of the final eight quarterbacks in the playoffs is 25.4 years old, which is incredibly young. We have a couple of 23-year-olds. That's Trevor Lawrence and Brock Purdy. 
24-year-old Jalen Hurts, 25-year-old Daniel Jones, 26-year-olds Joe Burrow and Josh Allen, 27-year-old Patrick Mahomes, and then the peepaw of the group is 29-year-old Dak Prescott. So, um, you know, man, that's that's pretty special, all right? There's a lot of exceptional quarterback talent in that group of eight, all right? Um, so it is going to be a fantastic weekend of the divisional round. Uh, four games to get through. Uh, I will be watching all four uh, from start to finish, and I'm sure you'll probably tune in to several of them. So uh, we will check back in next week and do a divisional round recap while previewing the conference championship games. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League, do a quick standings update here in the NHL. Uh, most teams have played uh, around 44 to 45 or 6 games, so we have uh, officially passed the halfway point of the NHL season. We did talk about that last week, but we're we're well over the halfway point now, uh, several games over. All right, so we're we're clear of that. So we're on the back nine of the NHL's regular season, and uh, I'm going to switch the way that I do standings updates from here until the end of the year. We're going to do the wild card standings. All right, and basically what that is, I'll give you the top three teams in each division uh, for each conference, and then the top two teams in the wild card spots plus a couple of teams that are close to those final two wild card spots because in the NHL the way the playoffs work the top three teams from each division get in so that's a total of six teams plus the top two wild cards so that's why we'll do these type of standings from here on out in the Eastern Conference the Metropolitan Division the top three teams you have the Carolina Hurricanes they're up top with 62 points uh, the New Jersey Devils are closing in. They have 61 points, all right? They've won five games in a row. They hit a little rough patch uh, last week, but they have turned it on this week. They've won five in a row. New Jersey's just a point behind Carolina. And then third in the Metropolitans, the New York Rangers with 57 points, all right? Uh, top three teams in the Atlantic Division, the Boston Bruins, 74 points, okay? They, they just continue to dominate. They've won three in a row, eight out of their last ten. I feel like I say that with them uh, every episode. Their record at home is 21-1-3, which is just beyond uh, preposterous. All right, they, uh, They've played 44 games, and um, they've, they've won 35 of them. So uh, that's, that's next level ridiculous. Uh, they, they did lose that one home loss in regulation came this week to the Seattle Kraken. It was a three nothing shutout. So, uh, but they they're on pace for like sixty five wins and one hundred and thirty nine points, which both of those would set all time records for for most wins by a team and most points in a season. So, uh, you know, can that be sustained? I, I don't know, but damn, the the Bruins are good. Uh, number two in the Atlantic, the Toronto Maple Leafs. They got sixty one points. All right, so they're thirteen points behind Boston. And then the third-place team in the Atlantic the Tampa Bay Lightning with 57 points. All right, the Lightning have won four games in a row uh, and eight out of their last ten. So they're trying to creep back up, but, um, you know, they're, they're 17 points back of, of Boston at this particular moment. So that's, you know, that's a ways back. The top two teams in the wild-card spots right now, the first wild-card team is the Washington Capitals. They have 54 points. 
Alexander Ovechkin, he scored his 30th goal of the season this past week, which uh, was his 17th career 30-goal season, which ties Mike Gartner's record for the most 30-goal seasons in NHL history. I mean, he's, he's going to tra- uh, track down Gretzky. I mean, we know that's happening. By the time Ovechkin retires, he will be the NHL's all-time leader in goals, all right? Second place wildcard team, or second wildcard team at the moment is the Pittsburgh Penguins with 51 points, all right? So they're right there. The two teams that are immediately closest to them uh, that are out of the playoffs as of this moment, the New York Islanders with 50 points and the Florida Panthers with 47 points, all right? Over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, as it currently sits, uh, my Dallas Stars are atop the Central Division with 59 points. All right, they're they're playing as I record this, and they're up two nothing against the Sharks, who are one of the uh, make that three nothing. They just scored as I said that, so they're up three nothing on the Sharks. So, uh, assuming Dallas wins this game, they're going to have uh, 61 points. All right, the Winnipeg Jets are second with 59 points. Minnesota Wild are third with 54 points, all right? Wild have been playing some really good hockey. So have the Jets. The Jets have won eight out of their last ten, and the Wild are on a three-game winning streak. So they're trying to track down the Stars, uh, but Dallas keeps playing really good hockey and keeps staying a little bit clear uh, of both of those teams. Over in the Pacific Division, the Vegas Golden Knights are up top there with 58 points, all right? And then the Seattle Kraken have... uh, they're, they're, they're in second place in the Pacific with 56 points, just two points back of Vegas. They've won eight out of their last 10, uh, but they did win eight games in a row, all right? And they have just been on an absolute tear lately. Uh, they became the first team in NHL history to sweep a road trip of seven or more games. So they had a seven-game road trip and won all seven games. First time in NHL history that that's been done. And this is a second-year team who was just abysmal last year. So that is very impressive, the turnaround that we've seen in Seattle this year. And uh, in a game against the Chicago Blackhawks this past week, the Kraken scored six goals on their first six shots, which is, I mean, that's like peewee stuff. That's something you don't see in the NHL. But uh, you did this past week with Seattle. They scored on all six of their first six shots. So, um that Los Angeles Kings are third in the Pacific, but they too have 56 points. All right, so they're tied with Seattle in points, but Seattle has more wins. And then the top two wildcard teams at the moment, the Edmonton Oilers with 53 points and the Calgary Flames with 51 points. All right, the, uh, the, the, the three teams that are right behind them, the Nashville Predators with 48 points, Colorado Avalanche with 47 points, and St. Louis Blues also have... 47 points. So it's just crazy to see Colorado and Nashville, two perennial playoff teams currently sitting out of the playoffs. And the two wildcard spots are occupied by Pacific Division teams at the moment. But Western Conference is, is going to be a fun watch. All right. It's uh, the rest of the way. Some, some really good teams, some surprising teams. I mean, Kings, they're also surprising this year. All right. I didn't think anybody would have probably had them slotted for a playoff spot this year, but there they sit currently. So uh, some damn good hockey coming at you the rest of the way. Like I said, we're about 40, 44, 45 games into the uh, regular season, and uh, we'll stay with you. But the wild card standings is what we're going to roll with moving forward. Um, those are um, 
you know, a little easier to kind of follow. And uh, so that's what we'll do. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check back in next week to see where we're at. But we'll move over to the NBA, do a standings update here in the NBA. Uh, most teams have played about 45 games as well, maybe 46 games. Uh, it's, you know, right on pace with the NHL. And um, so we'll just do a standings update uh, like we normally do. In the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics are up top, 33-12. and 12. Uh, They have won seven games in a row. Uh, have a four-game lead over the Milwaukee Bucks, who are 29-16. and 16. Um, Third place, Philadelphia 76ers, 28-16. They've won three in a row and eight out of their last ten. Another team playing really good ball. The Brooklyn Nets, they've slid down to fourth, all right? They're 27-16. and 16. They've been without Kevin Durant for about a week. Should be reevaluated after another week, but they've lost three games in a row. All right, so it's clear that they're missing Kevin Durant. Cleveland Cavaliers are fifth at twenty-eight and eighteen. The Miami Heat are sixth at twenty-five and twenty-one. Uh, they've won seven out of their last ten. They're finally making an appearance inside that top six uh, for the first time in a long time. New York Knicks are seventh at twenty-five and twenty-one. Uh, they, too, have also won seven out of their last ten. The Atlanta Hawks are eighth in the East at 23-22. and 22. They've won four games in a row. I just came down to Dallas and, and beat my uh, Mavericks the other night. Number nine in the East, the Indiana Pacers at 23-23. and 23. Uh, They're going the wrong direction uh, with five straight losses. Chicago Bulls are 20-24. and 24. They're tenth in the East. 11th is the Toronto Raptors at 20 and 25. 12th is the Washington Wizards at 19 and 26. 13th, Orlando Magic, 16 and 28. 14th, Charlotte Hornets at 12 and 34. All right, they've only won twice in their last 10 games. And then the Detroit Pistons still holding up the rear there in the East at 12 and 35. Uh, Although they have won three games in their last 10. Okay, that's. Uh, that is that's pretty good considering they only have twelve wins all year. The Western Conference, the Denver Nuggets are up top. They're actually tied. Denver Nuggets and uh, Memphis Grizzlies are tied uh, with thirty-one and thirteen records. Okay, both of them are ridiculously hot right now. Denver uh, has won seven in a row, nine out of their last ten. While the Memphis Grizzlies have won 11 games in a row, hottest team in the NBA, all right, Nikola Jokic for the Nuggets, certainly in the MVP conversation. I mean, the dude steps on the floor, and he's got a triple-double penciled in, like a 20-point, 16-rebound type triple-double, right? Like, it's just, I mean, that's just who he is. Ja Morant, same thing with the Grizzlies, uh, obviously one of the best players in the game, helping carry that team. That team's really good. The, the Grizzlies are, are very good. Uh, good supporting cast, too, with uh, with Ja. You know, they got Desmond Bain, um, you know, Steven Adams, and it's um, it's just a, it's a tough team. Third in the Western Conference, the New Orleans Pelicans at 26 and 19. Uh, fourth is the Sacramento Kings at 24 and 18. They have won four games in a row. Um, now, I did see a stat. Uh, 
it's been a while since the Kings have made the playoffs and been relevant, right? Uh, the Seattle Supersonics have won a playoff series more recently than the Sacramento Kings. So uh, Sacramento is looking to change that. Uh, of course, Seattle's not even a team anymore. That's now the Oklahoma City Thunder. But uh, the Kings are looking to change that. They're fourth in the Western Conference right now. They passed the Mavericks this week because uh, my Dallas Mavericks, they are fifth in the West at 24-22. and 22. They've lost three games in a row. Um, Luka's come out and said um, that he's hoping that the Mavericks are active at the trade deadline. Mark Cuban denied it, but it's out there. That's what Doncic said. Luka did, though. He became the first player age 23 or younger to average 40 points over a 10-game span since Michael Jordan did it in 1986. So just incredible. He was the Western Conference Player of the Month for December. Um, he's the MVP favorite right now uh, in the league. Uh, and it's it's I don't think it's particularly close. Maybe Jason Tatum of the Celtics. but uh, Sixth in the West, the Golden State Warriors. Look at that. 22-22, and 22, and uh, guess what? They've won a couple of road games this week. They're up to 5-17 and 17 on the road. So uh, impressive stuff there for Golden State. Uh, seventh place, Utah Jazz at 24-24. and 24. Uh, Eighth is the Los Angeles Clippers at 23-24. and 24. Uh, They have lost eight out of their last ten, so uh, that, that's not what you want to be doing. Ninth is the Minnesota Timberwolves at 22 and 23. And then uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder that I just referenced. They're 10th with a record of 22 and 23, which is very impressive. Uh, they've won four in a row, seven out of their last 10. Uh, and they've been camped out in that um, you know, 12, 13 range most of the season. And here they sit at, you know, currently in the play-in tournament. All right, if the season were to end today. Portland Trailblazers are 11th at 21 and 23. Uh, the Phoenix Suns, they still got some issues going on. They're 21 and 24. Uh, they've lost three in a row. Uh, they've lost nine out of their last 10. And um, the way that they're playing, I mean, nothing would tell you. They're 45 games into their regular season. All right. So they are more than halfway through. And, you know, the first month and a half, two months, you look like the same Phoenix team that uh, made it to the uh, NBA Finals last year, but or uh, Western Conference Finals rather. But uh, that's not the. I mean, it's mostly the same guys, but it's not the same team. You know, they still have uh, Chris Paul, uh, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker. Like the the team is still really good. Um, but they, they, for whatever reason, they can't put it together. And, you know, I can't sit here right now and tell you they're going to be in the playoffs, not not after what we've seen these last uh, several weeks. Uh, 13th in the West, the Los Angeles Lakers. They're 20-24. and 24. Uh, LeBron James, he scored his 38,000th career point this past week, which um, brings him within about 360 points uh, from passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the all-time scoring lead. Um it's possible he does that this year. I mean, it, you know, I think he, pre- he probably will. 360 points the rest of the year. I mean, that's, you know, the average is probably, what, 25 a game. So certainly doable this year for LeBron. So we might be looking at the NBA's all-time scoring leader by the end of the year. 
San Antonio Spurs are 14th at 14 and 31, and then the uh, Houston Rockets. Um, they're they're 10 and 35, and they've lost 12 games in a row. So um, it's a full on tank job going on there in Houston. Uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it's still a tank job uh, because they are they are brutal. But uh, that's the uh, NBA uh, update for you. Like I said, we're we're on about forty five games in, so a lot of basketball left. But we are officially past the halfway point. But we'll move over to the PGA Tour and uh, do a recap of this past weekend's tournament, which was the Sony Open in Hawaii. All right, it was their second event in Hawaii in a row. It was at the Waialai Country Club, which is in Honolulu, Hawaii. It was a par 70. Distance was 7,044 yards, all right? I mentioned it was the second Hawaiian tournament in a row. Uh, the week before, they were at the Century Tournament of Champions there in Maui. Uh, but Waialai is one of the longest-tenured uh, host venues on the PGA Tour, very narrow course. Fairways uh, had a lot of trees, total of 83 bunkers, all right, which which was a lot, all right. There were, that's, that averages about 4.6 bunkers per hole, so definitely a lot. You know, it was uh, still Oceanside being in, in Hawaii, very scenic, beautiful, all right, and um, you factor in all the trees and the bunkers um, with the tight fairways that made it difficult to navigate, but um, still a, a very, very good course field for the, the Sony open in Hawaii was, I would say it was above average, uh, not, not exceptional, but, uh, just good 10 out of the top 37 golfers in the official world golf rankings were out there. Uh, we also had six out of the top eight golfers in the FedEx cup standings going into the week, uh, were out there. Now, interesting thing about the Sony open is that, uh, you know, we, we've seen a lot of winners from this tournament that played in the Century Tournament of Champions, all right? So we had 19 out of the 39 golfers that played the week prior at the Century Tournament of Champions. 19 of those 39 made their way over from Maui to Honolulu to play in the Sony Open. And uh, since the Century Tournament of Champions has moved over to Hawaii back in 1999, uh, 17 out of the 24 Sony Open winners had played the week prior at uh, Kapalua at the Century Tournament of Champions. So I just mentioned that. So 17 out of 24 of Sony Opens uh, previously played in Hawaii uh, were won by players that played the week prior in Hawaii. So a little bit of a home field advantage, you know, long flight, severe time change. Uh, all of that plays into it. And, um, but that, that, uh, I will say that did not happen this week. So that stat is now officially 17 out of the last 25 Sony open winners, uh, played the week prior, uh, at the century tournament champions, but, um, two of the prior three Sony opens and four out of the prior seven had gone into a playoff. So, um, you know, we knew this thing was going to be close and, and boy, was it, um, we didn't have a playoff this week, but. It was pretty damn close. All right. Only six golfers ever. This is just a fun fact. Only six golfers ever have won both Hawaiian events, meaning the Century Tournament of Champions and the Sony Open. Uh, your winner in this thing, when it was all said and done, was Siwoo Kim. 
all right? He won with a score of 18 under par, all right? And he did so in a pretty dramatic fashion. Uh, he opened on Thursday and Friday with a pair of three under 67s and then closed on Saturday and Sunday with a pair of six under 64s, all right? Now, that Sunday's round, Siwoo Kim actually uh, birdied his final two holes, 17 and 18 on Sunday to win. He chipped in on one of them, um, which ended up uh, giving him the win. So just an impressive final couple holes in crunch time there for Siwoo Kim. That was his fourth career victory on the PGA Tour. All right. We've seen him win before. I believe he's won the Players' Championship several years back, but yeah, fourth career victory on tour, very close win. Solo second was Hayden Buckley at 17 under. Um, he shot really well too. He had a pair of of six under 64s in his middle rounds on Friday and Saturday, um, which which kept him in it. And then uh, solo third was Chris Kirk at 15 under par. Um, he went 64, 65, and then a pair of two under 68s to close out. Uh, three guys tied for fourth at 14 under par. That's Andrew Putnam, David Lipsky, and Ben Taylor. So you see, we don't really have a whole lot of big names uh, in that in that top, you know, several players that I just mentioned. And um, there was five guys tied at 13 under, which was T7 in the standings. Aaron Baddeley, Matt Kuchar, Maverick McNeely, Nate Lashley, and Nick Taylor. All right, so again... The field, you know, a lot of the bigger name guys didn't play that well, all right? Um, it just, it was kind of a weird week. Jordan Spieth missed the cut. I mean, he was the highest ranked player in the world. He missed the cut. Gary Woodland missed the cut. Webb Simpson missed the cut. You know, guys that you expect, Sung J.M., Billy Horschel, like a lot of these top ranked players that were playing, they missed the cut. So it was kind of strange to watch competitive weekend golf without any of the top players in the tournament but uh, that's exactly what happened doesn't take away from the tournament still a fantastic tournament I didn't really catch a whole lot of this thing I was more tuned into football but um, I did uh, manage to watch just a few minutes of it Uh, but uh, that brings us to this weekend's tournament which uh, is where the PGA Tour returns to the mainland United States after spending two weeks on the islands. Uh, PGA Tour is going to be teeing it up at uh, in Coachella Valley, which, of course, is in California. Uh, it's a unique tournament this weekend. Uh, it's, it's, the tournament name is the American Express. All right? Three courses are going to be utilized this week. All right? uh, the PGA West has a stadium course and a Nicholas tournament course. All right, so... The stadium course at PGA West is 7,187 yards, par 72. All right. The Nicholas Tournament course at the PGA West is 7,147 yards, so about 40 yards shorter than the stadium course. Same par of 72. And then the third course is the La Quinta Country Club. All right. That is 7,060 yards. Um, about a hundred yards shorter than the other two courses, par seventy-two as well. So how this is going to do is uh, all the golfers, all right, they're going to play one round each at all three courses. 
before a cut is made after 54 holes. So everybody gets three rounds, um, but the final round is going to be the PGA West Stadium course. That is the toughest of the three, all right? It's the longest. It's also the toughest, very undulating and uh, very difficult course to play. Um, So the final round will be um, played at the PGA West Stadium course. Uh, this is actually a pro-am tournament. It's one of only two pro-ams on the PGA Tours calendar. Uh, the other one's the AT&T Pebble Beach pro-am. Uh, but each pro and his amateur partner, all right, they're going to play for three rounds, uh, at one round at each of the three courses before the low 65 professionals and ties uh, play their final round at the, the stadium course. All right, so... Uh, really cool format this week. Um, something different, right? Uh, which is always exciting. Uh, but the American Express, the tournament itself is one of the longest tenured PGA Tour events. This is actually the 64th edition of the American Express. Okay. Field for this thing is just phenomenal. Five out of the top 10 golfers in the official world golf rankings are going to be out there teeing it up. Uh, along with 10 out of the top 19 in the official World Golf Rankings. So some high-level players out there. We also have 10 out of the top 18 in the current FedEx Cup standings teeing it up. So some of the top dogs that you'll see out there, Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm, Patrick Cantlay, uh, Xander Shoffley, who's actually returning. He withdrew from the Century Tournament of Champions with a back injury, but he's going to be back out there. Will Zalatoris, Tony Finau, Sam Burns, Cameron Young, Tom Kim, Sung J.M., and then this past week's winner, Siwoo Kim. So a, a spectacular field of players. Also have some really good amateur players out there, some college players. So it'll be fun. It's in, uh, you know, it's in Coachella Valley. So uh, some really neat courses, like I said, um, just a, a fun, you know, it's always good to have something different on the PGA Tour. It gets a little um, little mundane if, you know, playing the same course four days in a row. I mean, it's still challenging. It's still good to watch if you like golf. But uh, tournaments that add different flavor certainly um, make the visual aspect of it more appealing if you if you watch it. So, um, you know, we got some some real good playoff football on this week. So I, I I can't sit here and tell you that I'll be watching this tournament. I'm going to try and catch some of it. Uh, it just depends. I might be able to catch the early, early uh, guys uh, teeing off before football starts. That's probably what I'll do. But uh, nonetheless, we will check back in next week and see how the American Express ended up. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. It is absolutely loaded this week. We'll start off in the National Football League. This past week, the NFL announced that uh, if there is a Kansas City versus Buffalo AFC championship game, meaning that if Kansas City and Buffalo both win their games this weekend, uh, the AFC championship game will be played at a neutral site and that neutral site stadium will be Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, home of the Atlanta Falcons. So that is certainly a neutral site, uh, not particularly close to either uh, of those two cities. Now, I did mention this last week, but the reason for this is because 
Buffalo only played 16 regular season games, all right? And after that Week 17 game against Cincinnati that was canceled for the DeMar Hamlin incident, um, you know, they had to put this plan in place because Buffalo and Cincinnati both only played 16 games, the only two teams in the league that did not play 17. So um, now that Buffalo had beaten Kansas City earlier in the regular season back in week six in their head-to-head matchup. That game was in Kansas City. Buffalo won that game. So if the Bills would have beaten the Bengals in that week 17 game in Cincy uh, and, and won their week 18 game like they did, uh, they would have been the number one seed in the AFC instead of Kansas City. So they would have had home field in, in that game. So that's why the NFL... Uh, in fairness, decided to make the AFC championship game a neutral site uh, if it were to be Buffalo and Kansas City. But if Jacksonville and or Cincinnati win their games this weekend, then this is a moot point and does not matter. But uh, with the NFL's regular season being over, we now know the first 18 picks of the upcoming NFL draft uh, will certainly Uh, keep you up to date on that as we get through the playoffs and uh, have the final draft order finished but as of right now the top 18 picks in the upcoming NFL draft the top pick belongs to the Chicago Bears number two the Houston Texans three Arizona Cardinals four Indianapolis Colts five Seattle Seahawks via the Denver Broncos from that Russell Wilson trade Six is the Detroit Lions via the Los Angeles Rams and that Matthew Stafford trade a couple years ago. Seven is Las Vegas Raiders. Eight, Atlanta Falcons. Nine, Carolina Panthers. Ten, Philadelphia Eagles via the New Orleans Saints and that trade that New Orleans moved to get up and acquire Chris Olave this past year. Number 11, Tennessee Titans. Number 12, the Houston Texans. That pick is via the Cleveland Browns. 13, New York Jets, 14, New England Patriots, 15, Green Bay Packers, 16, Washington Commanders, 17, Pittsburgh Steelers, and 18, Detroit Lions. So as you can see, uh, the Houston Texans and the Detroit Lions both have two picks uh, inside the top 18. So that uh, just wanted to note that, that that was already published. Like I said, once we get to the Super Bowl and past the Super Bowl we'll have the final draft order come out and we'll talk about that as we get closer to April's draft Uh, but after talking uh, about a couple of head coaching firings last week I mentioned that uh, Rams head coach Sean McVay uh, might not be returning to the team Uh, but this past week he came out and flat out said he was in fact returning to the Rams so Sean McVay will be staying as the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams that's came as a little bit of a surprise, I guess, considering um, the season that he just had and the fact that he's had offers to go be a broadcaster, um, I believe, with Amazon. So, um, you know, we'll see how they do this year. They have no draft picks really to work with. And, um, you know, there might be some retirements coming from the Rams. So uh, some other news, the Chicago Bears, they announced they have hired – Kevin Warren as their new president and CEO. Now, Kevin Warren, he's been serving the last several years as the commissioner of the Big Ten Conference, all right? And he was instrumental in getting USC 
and UCLA over to the Big Ten, as well as the Big Ten acquiring the $8 billion media rights deal with NBC that I think is slated to start this upcoming fall. So um, he has previous front office experience in the NFL, and um, you know, being in the Big Ten, he was already close to Chicago, if not in Chicago already, so uh, he just now moves over to the president and CEO role of the Bears. A couple of teams, though, have hired new general managers. The first one is the Arizona Cardinals. They hired the Tennessee Titans director of player personnel, Monty Osenfort, as their new GM. And then the Tennessee Titans, they hired San Francisco 49ers director of pro personnel, Ron Carthen, as their new GM. All right, so uh, that's uh, just a couple of notes there. Uh, One contract extension after the season uh, ended for the the Seattle Seahawks last week. Seattle has re-signed kicker Jason Myers, four years, $21.1 million. That contract could be worth up to $22.6 million with incentives. All right, so uh, this makes Jason Myers the second highest paid kicker in the league behind Baltimore's Justin Tucker. All right, so that's a lot of money for a kicker. Um, but it's an important position, as we talked about earlier um, in that Cowboys-Bucks game, what we saw. But some other stuff uh, real quick. The NFL announced that um, their regular season TV ratings, uh, and I thought this was interesting, their regular season TV ratings saw a 3% drop from last year, but they still drew an average of 16.7 million viewers um, which is the third highest average since 2016. Um, the NFL still rules the sports world, all right? I mean, that's, you know, their numbers are still significantly higher than um, the NBA's or the NHL's, Major League Baseball's. So, uh, you know, the NFL still has, you know, plenty of viewers that just saw a 3% drop, which I think is interesting. Um, football's more competitive and this season was even more crazy than uh it would have been expected to be so um that's that's a little surprising but well while the tv viewership may have dipped a little uh the fan attendance certainly did not Uh, i did come across this graphic that showed the top 10 teams in 2022 regular season total home attendance right now keep in mind that some teams had eight home games some teams had nine And uh, so top 10 teams in total home attendance, number 10, Tampa Bay Buccaneers with almost 621,000, New York Jets, uh, 624,000, number eight, Atlanta Falcons, about 626,000, number seven, Philadelphia Eagles, almost 629,000, number six, Carolina Panthers, 642,000. Number five, San Francisco 49ers, about 645,000. Number four, Los Angeles Rams, 654,000. Number three, Green Bay Packers, 686,000. Number two, New York Giants, 688,000. And then number one is my Dallas Cowboys with a little over 841,000. So the Cowboys are in the lead there, and it's not even close. All right, interesting to see that both New York teams uh, are inside the top 10. Giants, number two overall, 
about 60,000, 64,000 fans in front of the Jets, who are at number nine. Um, <clears throat> so that's um, – I just thought that was uh, interesting. Three of the four NFC East teams, right, the three playoff teams that we just talked about, Philly, Dallas, and New York, uh, all of them appear in here. And then, of course, you know, some others aren't surprising. But I just thought that was interesting. That's That was uh, numbers for total – home fan attendance all right uh, also this past week the nfl announced their all pro selections from this regular season i'm just going to mention the first team all pro selections on offense it's patrick mahomes josh jacobs justin jefferson tyreek hill Devonte adams travis kelsey uh, trent williams lane johnson joel batonio zach martin and jason kelsey and then on defense, you have Nick Bosa, Micah Parsons, uh, Chandler Jones, Quinnen Williams, uh, Fred Warner, Roquan Smith, Matt Milano, Sauce Gardner, Patrick Sertan, Minka Fitzpatrick, and Talanoa Hufunga. All right, so that's your first team all pro. Uh, not really, I mean, there's a couple surprising players. You know, rookie Sauce Gardner uh, on the defensive side. I'd uh, had a terrific year and made first team all pro as a rookie, which I mean he was a top ten pick, so uh, he certainly lived up to the hype. Uh, but um, final NFL note, I came across this graphic, all right, that showed the top ten selling NFL jerseys from this past se- uh, season. Now this list is per NFLShop.com, all right. So um, you know it's. There, I'm sure other sites probably have a different variation of this, but per NFLshop.com, here are the top 10 selling NFL jerseys from this year. Number 10, Tom Brady. Number 9, Justin Fields. Number 8, Jalen Hurts. Number 7, Justin Jefferson. Number 6, Dak Prescott. Number 5, CeeDee Lamb. Number 4, Joe Burrow. Number 3, Patrick Mahomes. Number 2, Micah Parsons. And number one, Josh Allen. All right, so you'll notice that three of the top six jerseys are Dallas Cowboys. All right, no surprise there. Uh, And then, of course, you have your usual suspects, Allen, Mahomes, uh, Brady. Um, New this year was certainly uh, Jalen Hurts. You know, Justin Jefferson's up there uh, at number seven. And then probably the most surprising is Justin Fields, right? Um, you know, he had a terrific second half of the year. Certainly last uh, six, seven weeks where he was terrific. So Chicago's got a big fan base, and um, so he, he was up there in top 10 jersey sales. But moving over to the NBA real quick, uh, this past Friday night, last last Friday, the San Antonio Spurs hosted the Golden State Warriors. All right, That game was actually played at the Alamo Dome, in San Antonio, and it was in celebration of the Spurs' 50th anniversary. There was a crowd of 68,323 people on hand to watch that game, which made it the largest crowd ever uh, for an NBA regular season game. Shattered the old record of, of just over 62,000, so about 6,000 more than the old record. That old one was set back in March of 98 when uh, Michael Jordan's Bulls played the Atlanta Hawks at the Georgia Dome, all right? So this new game just shattered it, uh, the record, and uh, the Warriors shattered the Spurs, man. I think they put up like 140 points that night. 
So, uh, <clears throat> you know, that was it was just cool. I saw some pictures. I didn't watch the game. But I've been to the Alamo Dome personally uh, several times. And, um, you know, it's a cool little cool little stadium. And, um, you know, playing basketball on a football field is, uh, you know, it's some seats. I saw some pictures of some seats that were really far away. And, you know, it was almost like, what what's the point in going if you can't really see what's going on? But, you know, they did it for a purpose, and, and it was successful. And the Spurs now own the uh, – record for the most spectators on hand in a regular season game but over in major league baseball the only noteworthy trade we're still hot and heavy in the offseason all right um pitchers and catchers should be reporting here in a couple of weeks but uh one trade the los angeles dodgers they acquired uh, shortstop miguel rojas from the miami marlins in exchange for an infield prospect uh, you know, the Dodgers lost Trey Turner in free agency, and he was their shortstop, so they had to fill a, a void there. And Miguel Rojas is, you know, I would say probably an above-average shortstop. He's certainly nowhere near Trey Turner's level, but uh, they had a hole, and uh, they needed to uh, plug it, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, some free agent stuff to go through. San Diego Padres, they signed 42-year-old Nelson Cruz. can't believe that guy's 42, but... Uh, One-year deal there. Uh, you know, I think he only had about 10, 12 home runs last year, so his power certainly has declined as his age has gone up. But, you know, he can deliver a big one when you need it. Uh, Padres also agreed on a couple of one-year contracts to avoid salary arbitration, one of which was with uh, Juan Soto. One-year uh, one contract, $23 million, which I think is far lower than he would get on a multi-year deal. I mean, we're talking probably 35 million a year 30 35 million a year for Juan Soto uh at least uh, on a multi-year deal so 23 for one year for Soto is uh that's probably a steal uh, I know it doesn't sound like it but I think it is same same with uh their closer Josh Hader they got him one year 14.1 million which is actually a record amount for a relief pitcher on an arbitration deal uh, Philadelphia Phillies, they agreed to a one-year $12 million contract with uh, first baseman Reese Hoskins. That was also to avoid arbitration. <clears throat> Hoskins is a good power bat in, in that lineup. And uh, so he's he's playing at least this year on on the uh, on that one-year salary. Pittsburgh Pirates, they signed outfielder uh, Andrew McCutcheon, veteran player, one-year $5 million. Of course, McCutcheon played for the Pirates for many years. Uh, before spending the last couple in Milwaukee, so he returns back to Pittsburgh. Chicago Cubs, interesting one here. They signed uh, first baseman slash designated hitter Trey Mancini to a two-year deal. Of course, played with Baltimore, got traded to Houston at the deadline last year, won a World Series with Houston, and then uh, went over to Chicago on a two-year deal. Minnesota Twins, they re-signed starting pitcher Chris Paddock, three years, $12.5 million. Boston Red Sox signed outfielder Adam Duvall, one year, $7 million. And then New York Mets, they signed outfielder Tommy Pham, one year, $6 million. Again, not really sure where they continue to get this money, but um, $6 million is chump change compared to some of the other contracts that they've handed out. Uh, the last um, contract, arbitration-wise, that's noteworthy, the Toronto Blue Jays agreed to a one-year, $14.5 million deal with uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, this is another one that's really 
quite under what it should be. Um, I mean, if, if Vlad Guerrero Jr. gets a, a multi-year extension right now, he's he's probably mid-20s per year um, instead of 14 and a half. So that's, a, that's kind of a deal there for Toronto. Now, uh, time to move on to this week's segment on the Carlos Correa Circus. But we finally have an end to it, all right? Uh, this is the last time I'm mentioning Carlos Correa and his ridiculous free agency uh, season that we've seen. Correa finally passed his physical with the Minnesota Twins, okay? I don't know what they did different than what New York and San Francisco did, um, but maybe they closed their eyes and circled pass. Uh, whatever it was, Correa has passed the physical, so Carlos Correa is officially a Minnesota Twin for six years and $200 million. Now, just quickly to recap the offseason for Correa, he wound up setting a record that is not going to be broken at all. Um, he agreed, uh, in principle, to $865 million of contracts and 29 years worth of contracts in 28 days with three different teams. So let me replay that. In 28 days of winter offseason, he agreed to three different teams a contract that totaled 29 years and $865 million. All right, that's, uh, I mean, you can't make that up. But uh, he finally is a Minnesota twin, so uh, we don't have to beat that dead horse anymore. Uh, some news from the New York Yankees, starting pitcher Frankie Montas. He has right shoulder inflammation, so he's going to miss 8 to 10 weeks, which is, that's going to carry over into the regular season. All right, he is, I think, now slotted to be there fourth uh, pitcher in the rotation potentially maybe fifth uh, but he he's going to be in that rotation so there doesn't look like they're going to have him for the start of the regular season now I did mention the world baseball classic I talked about that a little bit last week with the four host venues that were named and I also mentioned how there's going to be a lot of MLB uh, player involvement in that world baseball classic but uh, this past week, it was announced that uh, pitchers and catchers who are participating in the World Baseball Classic are going to report to their respective MLB uh, spring training camps by Monday, February 13th. So we are less than a month away from that. Uh, position players participating in the World Baseball Classic will report to their spring training camps by Thursday, February 16th, so just three days later. Again, both of those dates are now inside uh, of a month. So we are uh, three and a half weeks away from seeing these pitchers and catchers and uh, players reporting to uh, spring training. It's coming up really quick, all right? Uh, I'm beyond ready for baseball season, all right? I, I love it. It's a great time of year. And um, this year particularly, I can't think of a better way to start the regular season than by playing the World Baseball Classic like immediately before. I think that's that's going to bode well because a lot of the top name players that are playing in the World Baseball Classic uh, will be ready to go. Uh, that's that playing in the in WBC uh, is certainly going to be more competitive than playing in spring training. So they'll be more season ready when it actually starts. So I think that'll be uh, really good. But we are officially less than fifty days away from the start of the World Baseball Classic. So uh, just keep that on the calendar. Uh, some other baseball news. Uh, Forbes uh, has announced that Major League Baseball set a new record for league revenue during the 2022 season. The MLB's revenue last year was $10.8 billion, all right, 
which is, you know, that's an insane amount of money. But, of course, it costs more to go to a game these days just as it does to buy any merchandise for your favorite team. I mean, all that stuff's super expensive, um, you know. And, of course, you know, baseball has the longest season out of the four major pro sports. So, uh, of course, the revenue is going to be uh, quite a bit more. But um, interesting note here in Major League Baseball, the Detroit Tigers, they have announced that they are adjusting the dimensions at Comerica Park. Uh, for 2023. So these changes are already being made. The changes are their center field fence is going to move in 10 feet from 412 feet uh, or two, two. They're going to move in 10 feet to 412 feet. It's at 422 feet right now. They're going to bring it in 10 feet to, to park center field at 412 feet. And they're also going to lower the height from eight and a half feet down to seven feet. All right. Make it easier to scale. Uh, right center field wall, that's going to lower from 13 feet. It's extremely high, down to 7 feet. And then the um, right field wall is going to lower from 8.5 down to 7, just like uh, center field. All right, so uh, their their outfield fence is going to be pretty uniform, then that 7 feet tall, all right, and then center field moves in 10 feet, all right, to bring it to 412 feet. So Comerica Park has typically... Uh, been a uh, pitcher's park, you know, historically. Um, so these these changes in dimensions are all in an effort to make it a more friendly hitter's park, all right? And like I said, it's predominantly been a pitcher's park. They made some, some dimension changes, put the bullpen out there, um, brought the left field fence in a little bit uh, several years ago, probably. I don't even want to guess. I bet it's probably been eight seasons or so maybe so they're they've been trying to slowly make it a, a hitter's park but uh this these dimension changes should certainly help that and then the biggest news out of major league baseball um is that the um, mlb has announced that um they are going to be testing automatic strike zones in triple a baseball this year so what i mean by that is there is going to be now. This is just for AAA. It has nothing to do with Major League Baseball at the moment. Just want to get that out there. This is strictly with AAA. Okay, uh, an electronic strike zone is going to be used in all thirty of the AAA ballparks this upcoming season. Half of the AAA games this year are going to be played with all of the balls and strikes determined by an electronic strike zone while the other half of the games will be determined uh, with automatic balls and strikes challenge system. Okay, so, um, I mean, I don't know what this does in terms of umpires, you know. I mean, if they move to an electronic strike zone, um, you know, I that pretty much gets rid of the need for umpires, right? Uh, or at least a home plate ump. So... Uh, and I, truthfully, I can't believe it's taken this long to make this happen. Uh, with the technology we have these days, if you watch a baseball game on TV, you see the strike zone uh, on the TV screen when they show replays of pitches that are close, you know, and, and umpiring in baseball, uh, being the home plate umpire in baseball, um, that is, um, you know, one of the more, uh, that is one of the most positions in all of officiating for like in all the major pro sports that has the most discretion right 
Uh, I mean, you literally call a ball or a strike based on where you perceive it to have entered the strike zone. And you see how many times they're wrong, right? So uh, the electronic strike zone should help take care of that because if it's in the strike zone, it's a strike. And if it's not, it's a ball. And there's no there's no discretion. It's it's not subjective in any matter, right? It's it's either in or it's out, or it's either a strike or, or, or a ball. And uh, the electronic strike zone is, is going to be as accurate as it gets, you know? I mean, there's that... I can't believe it's taken this long to do this, and I'm curious to see this in action, to be honest. Um, you'll still need field umpires to make the calls on the base paths, but, um, man, that uh, that's going to be pretty interesting to watch. Again, it only is dealing with AAA baseball. has nothing to do with Major League Baseball, but my assumption is that if it goes well this year in AAA using the electronic strike zone, that we could very well end up seeing this electronic strike zone in the MLB here in the next uh, two or three years, all right? So uh, just keep an eye on that. But that is going to wrap up the 106th episode of the Sports Island podcast. It has uh, it's a long episode this week. We had a lot of stuff to get into, but uh, again, you know, just a massive weekend ahead of us in the sports world. Um, most of you, I know I will spend... Uh, my whole weekend watching NFL playoff football in the divisional round. We have four four good games uh, coming at us. You know, uh, there'll be some hockey, some basketball, and uh, some PGA Tour golf that uh, has returned to the uh, the contiguous United States uh, back from their Hawaiian trip. So, uh, unique format for that. So that should be a decent watch. So again, plenty of stuff to get into uh, this week and on next week's episode. We'll recap. Of course, the divisional round games and uh, do our usual show from there. So until then, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.